Blog Talk Radio. Ah, cats. Jump back and dust off your Cadillac. You're listening to Respect for Life with your host, Brother Leroy, on the Keys Network. Blog Talk Radio, baby. Act like you already knew. Ow! the air. 
the sounds of South Africa. This is Brother Leroy, and the program is The Communicators coming to you by way of the Keys 107. Our scheduled guest, William Lauren Katz, we are attempting to make a connect with him, but in the meantime, let's say that we are thankful to the Most High for blessing us with another day on this good earth, another day to do some good deeds for ourselves, our families, for our community, and carrying a positive mental attitude that is a positive disposition can change a lot of things for other people. If it doesn't change anything for you, your positive demeanor can help other people. There's a lot of trying times going on. I'll put it in singular. These are trying times for many, 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 many people. It is indeed true that there's an engineering of the economy and these are my words, so that there's the very rich and the very poor. The middle class is being eliminated. They are straining at the bits. They're using credit cards to maintain a steady way of life that they are used to. However, the situation is very, very serious so that friends and relatives are calling on one another to help them out. We have to be in a position mentally to assist as best we can. So do not be surprised by who calls or whom you may be forced to call for help and assistance. The Keys 107 network has a number of programs that are geared to presenting information that you don't get anywhere else. And, of course, the Communicators and Respect for Life, the shows we do on Tuesday nights from 7 until 9 and Saturday evenings from 8 to 9, fit that category of presenting news and information. One of the things that the Keys 107 Network begins to offset is the misinformation that is coming to the general American public about any number of things, whether it's current events or whether historical data, etc. In the news here in New York, the situation with baseball player Alex Rodriguez has the front and the back pages. Now, I saw the Daily News today has 14 pages on Alex Rodriguez, and this is based on a guy being accused of of taking uh, steroids or something to boost his production ability as far as hits and home runs. The point, ladies and gentlemen, is that that information regarding Alex Rodriguez does not, they call him A-Rod, does not move our situation as a people one way or another. So we can't get caught up in what is presented to us as worthy of news and our attention because 90% of the times it's not worthy of our attention or our carrying the misinformation that they present in these papers to other people. So you have to search for information, and searching for information brings you to Blog Talk Radio, brings you to the Keys 107 Network, and you should mark your calendar for the various programs that we have on the Keys 107 Network. And, of course, you, those of you who have been listening to us, uh, that is the communicators, and Respect for Life by way of the Keys 107, you already marked it on your calendar in your brain. 
We may have our guest online. Do we have our guest online? Do we have our guest online? I'm listening. Yes. Uh, William Lauren Katz, ladies and gentlemen, is our guest. He is the author of many, 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 many books, and um, I, I would say over 30 books, uh, including uh, volumes that deal with series. And he is with us because the updated version of his second book, I believe is the second book, Indian Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage, is out. And it's a good read for you and your family. It's an easy access. And we're going to start with the fact of, well, let's, let's, let's start with how you were attracted to write a book about black Indians. And, and uh, I have some points to make as it relates to black people in America when I was coming up as a young boy claiming that they were, they, they would say, well, I'm, instead of claiming that they were Negro, they would say, well, I'm half Indian. So that put them a notch above some of the rest. But what was your attraction to writing about black Indians and define black Indians? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I remember when you had me on your television program years ago, and um, I'm delighted to be back with you. Well, I started to write a book um, called Black Indians because I did a book called The Black West. And in gathering the pictures for it, I began to notice that the, many of the pictures that I had of Native Americans, whether they were from New England or New York or California or the Southwest, uh, I'm looking at also at faces of people of African descent. And this mm-hmm. began to get my attention. I began to do research on it. And I began to find out that here was a whole hidden story of a relationship that was never mentioned in any textbook, Hollywood movies, any school courses, even college courses. It just went unnoticed, although there was research proving over and over again that this was a relationship. And I started to go out and lecture about it and uh, say that, you know, there are a lot of uh, people of African and Native American descent in the United States, as many as a third. And people would line up after I would finish my talk, the Museum of Natural History and other places, and they say, Mr. Katz, you got that wrong. It's more like 80 or 90 percent. And I began to find out that that was the case, that just about every family of African descent in the United States has a Native American ancestor. So it's a long history, and it goes back to the colonial period. Okay, well, keep you, you're telling the story right there. Keep on going. <laughs> well, I trace the story back to uh, Governor Vando of Hispaniola. That's uh, where Haiti and the D- Dominican Republic are today. And in 1502, he is complaining to famous King Ferdinand in a letter that the Africans who were brought in as slaves He said, fled to the Indians, and he used this particular phrase, never and never can be recaptured. Never can be recaptured. Well, what he's getting at is the the reason they can't be recaptured is they found an allied force out there, out there Mm -hmm. in the wilderness. 
they found people of uh, Native American descent who took them in, uh, took them in as full family members, armed them, stood by them, and during Tutin, they, uh, they, they couldn't be uh, recaptured. And this hmm. is the beginning of what I call the, uh, the first rainbow coalition. Hmm. This is the beginning of the, uh, the, the first freedom fighters in the United States, in the Americas. Hmm. And it's an, an incredible history, and that's why I wrote uh, Black Indians, and I called it a hidden heritage, because uh, people don't know of it. And I found that the black people that I talked to about it when I was writing, they, they knew this much. They told me they knew in their family there was an Uncle Joe or an Aunt Sarah or somebody like that, or there was some individual or some grouping that they knew were also of Native American ancestry. But in many cases, they didn't even know which Native American nation they were attached to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't know much more about them. They had just heard stories. And what I was getting on in, in the book, Black Indians, was that here's the historical background. I mean, I don't know about each family, but here's what happened among the Seminoles. Here's what happened among the Choctaws and the, and the Chickasaws. Here's what happened among all of the groups in, uh, from Brazil northward into New England and Newfoundland and New Jersey and the Northern California. And, and I, I would like to add one more thing to, uh, to this about the book, because you and I are talking on a radio program. <clears throat> I have uh, dozens and dozens of pictures, including photographs, in the book that prove my point of this alliance. As a matter of fact, Dr. Ivan Van Sertima, who I got to know quite well, has used some of my pictures in his latest, in his later books to prove his point of the mixture of Africans and Native Americans. Hmm. And ladies and gentlemen, William Lauren Katz, K-A-T-Z. That's the spelling, William Lauren Katz. And indeed, the book, The... um, Black Cowboys, the Black West, is a book filled with pictures, and so is this book, Black Indians, a Hidden Heritage. Now, Florida is on the conscience of many, many, many black folks today and and others, and the history or the hidden heritage of black Indians is a major part of the history of Florida. So share with us your revelations in that. Well, I'm I'm just delighted that that you that you asked that, because you had in Florida the strongest example of the mixture of Africans and Native Americans. They formed the the strongest alliance, and it went back to 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 this circumstance. Among the first inhabitants of Florida, the pioneers of Florida were Africans. They were they escaped from the uh, British colonies just to the north, Georgia, Alabama, the Carolinas, and so on. And they didn't head north on an underground railroad. It was too far away. They headed south into Florida, and they settled there. And around the time of the American Revolution, around 1776, the Seminole Nation, a break-off segment of the Creek Nation, who felt... They felt uh, oppressed uh, in their ethnicity by the Creeks. 
They headed south, and the Africans welcomed them and took them in as brothers and sisters. And together, these two people rebuilt the Seminole Nation as an intercultural nation with African and Native American people working together as a military alliance and an agricultural alliance that was based on the fact that the Africans taught the Seminoles methods of rice cultivation that they had learned in Senegambia and Sierra Leone, Africa. And let me just go on with this a minute. These two people were then attacked by slaveholders coming from the north, first uh, under the, under the uh, British rule, and then Americans, and they fought three separate Seminole Wars from about 1816 to 1858. I think that, that if you count that up, that's a 42-year period. They fought these wars against the United States, which was so upset. This actually was the slaveholders who were commanding the U.S. government who said, we got to get, we, we got to stop this. We got to lock this thing down in Florida. Our slaves are escaping there. The, uh, the Africans who are, who are living there are living free. By the way, they had plantations. They had horses. They had cattle. They grew up families. They uh, had planted crops of all kinds. And they, the slaveholders said, we've got to shut this down. It's attracting our slaves, our entire slave system in the southern colonies and then the southern states is at risk. We've got to close it down. So the United States fought three Seminole Wars on that. And hmm. I just want to give you some statistics just on the Seminole War. Half of the U.S. Army at times Half of the U.S. Army, I repeat, was deployed in Florida. 1,500 U.S. military lives were lost trying to suppress the Seminoles. And 30 to $40 million, and that's back in 1830s money, 30 $40 million was spent by the U.S. Congress to suppress this, this liberated force of people of African and Native American descent. And they didn't do it. I mean, finally, and, and oh, by the way, I have to add, the U.S. Army moved around. This was the strongest military force in the hemisphere. And here are the black and red Seminoles. They, they're moving around. They're fighting. They, they, they are on ground they know very well. But they have to, at the same time, move their families out of harm's way. And still they fought the United States Army, Navy, and Marines to a standstill for 42 years. I have to add, by the way, that there's still Seminoles living in Florida, and they still claim they never gave up. They did agree to migrate west during what was called the Indian removal, and uh, for some nations was the, the Trail of Tears, and did settle in Oklahoma, but that's another whole story. But this was... You talk about freedom fighters. You, you, you talk about daring people. You talk about taking on the strongest army in the Western Hemisphere. These people did it in Florida. Black and red people okay. among the, in the Seminole Nation. Brother Katz, you used the phrase, we built the Seminole Nation. Now, the the book says that the first inhabitants were were the blacks 
basically who escaped from the British colony. They were the first uh, settlers. Yes. Um, non-Indian, non-indigenous people to settle in Florida. Now you point out that the Seminoles broke away from the creek and joined up with the escaped blacks in Florida yes. and that together they rebuilt the Seminole nation. Are you saying, just explain that. Okay, what, what I mean is that on the basis of the, of each of the two groups making contributions, they came together as a military and agricultural alliance. We would have to call it a multicultural nation because it was, you know, these two peoples combined. By the way, occasionally they even accepted white people who uh, happened uh, to flee to them and want to get away from the uh, uh, repressive civilization, the colonial civilization imposed by the European powers to the north. And mm -hmm. there was enormous reason. Let, let me give you a, uh, an, an, an example there of, of, of two of the main leaders by the, the Second Seminole War were uh, Wildcat and John Horse. Now, Wildcat was a, a, a Seminole from the uh, segment that came down from the, the Carolinas and uh, in Alabama. And John Horst was an African. And these two people were, worked together. They, they were known as the leaders. And by the way, and, and they, 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 were, they were brilliant. They were brilliant in, uh, in military tactics and negotiations. And John Horst was a crack shot. And they, they were part of that army that fought the United States to a standstill in the Seminole War and, uh, you know, fought them off, of course, uh, millions and millions of dollars to the United States. By the way, the United States was so frustrated that by 1818 they purchased Florida from Spain so they could put down this revolt. I mm. mean, it's, you can't discuss the history of Florida without discussing the central, centrality of the Black Seminole Alliance in Florida. It determined the very fact that Florida became part of the United States, the very fact that three wars were fought there, uh, the fact that the U.S. invaded it, and before that, slaveholders invaded it. The whole history of Florida is tied up with the <clears throat> war the United States waged against the Black Seminole Alliance. Now, uh, something comes to mind, uh, Brother Katz. I can, I can hardly hear you. Something, can you hear me now? Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Something comes yes. to mind, and that is the revolt, the liberation of Haiti by the blacks right. on the island of Hispaniola. And that which is not written about that often in the history books, you'll only find it in and in, in you'll find it in very few books. And that is the penalty that the Europeans and the Americans in Canada have uh, unofficially or officially agreed to suppress Haiti even till today so that it will not be an example of the ability of a nation of blacks to free themselves and then make it on their own. What I'm making a comparison. What yes. my 
unspoken situation in Florida as it relates to blacks in Florida and the people who run Florida, the Caucasians who run Florida? Well, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear, clear, Brother Leroy, that the, uh, the, I don't think you'll find much about the Seminole Alliance and its contribution to American freedom in the textbooks of Florida. I know at one point I was down uh, giving a lecture there in the the 70s, and, you know, some school administrator disputed what I was saying. Mm. You know, know, this is a suppressed story, and, and of course, it's, it's known to you. I'm sure many of your listeners, it's certainly known to me, that the suppression of this history, the suppression of this truth, is part of the effort to keep people of color down today. You don't have slavery, but if you can deprive people of their history, especially their glorious contributions to democracy and the battle for freedom, you can, you're helping to disempower them. You're helping to keep them from understanding that they and their ancestors have a long story of fighting for democracy and freedom, and, and that, of course, would encourage them to continue into the current day. Let's talk about an interesting character that you talk about in the book, Cherokee Bill. Share with our audience what you found about Cherokee Bill. Well, you know, we've all seen many cowboy movies, I'm sure. I mean, when I was growing up, they were the main thing we kids would go to see on on Saturday afternoon there in Manhattan. And uh, I never saw a, a black sheriff. In, in any of those movies, I never even saw a black outlaw. I certainly right. never saw a black Indian. But right. in, in these later chapters of black Indians, I've, I've come upon a number of people, and Cherokee Bill is a prize example. He was a black outlaw. He, uh, and, and by the way, his story is very interesting because he didn't start out that way. But he was in a family, and his father was a U.S. soldier that time there were uh, four army or regiments of black soldiers after the civil war and his father got accused of something he didn't do and mm. he had to flee his family and cherokee bill grew up resenting the fact that his father was innocent of anything and had served in the army had to flee because of accusations against him because of he was a indeed a, a person of african descent and he was okay. He he lived with his mother, and he was a law-abiding citizen. And then something snapped in him at the age of 18. He was at a dance, and he was dancing with a, a young woman, and somebody cut in on him, and he got in a fight. And the guy knocked him down. Well, Cherokee Bill at that point lost it, went home, got his six guns, and blew the man away. And from, and, and from, from then on, he became one of the most notorious outlaws out there in the Oklahoma Territory. By the way, I just want to add, uh, before I go on, that there were, or I have to say this, it's important, there were also black deputy sheriffs, black Indian deputy sheriffs in the Oklahoma Territory, and I managed to come up with a couple of photographs of some of them. But anyway, let's go back to Cherokee Bill. So he was he was shooting up people. He was uh, not a character you want to sit down and have a dinner with. He uh, you know he was in that wild situation there, 
and they finally caught up with him. He was as tough as nails. Uh, the he was brought up before Judge Isaac Parker, the famous or infamous hanging judge, out there, and he was sentenced to death. And they put him in the cell, but somebody smuggled a gun into him, and by and he, made, he tried to make an escape, killed a deputy sheriff, got thrown back in. So finally, they 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 finally took him out to hang him, and there was a large crowd there. By that time, by the way, I have to tell you. He had killed some black people as well as white people and some Native right. American people. And uh, he, he was a bad dude. He was an alpha. And the, and the crowd was all there, including, uh, oh, some of his girlfriends. I forgot to mention this. He was a very handsome guy. You can see his picture and photograph in the book. And when he went, he would escape into the Indian Territory. He had a lot of girlfriends that were willing to put him up, something that, the posses that followed him couldn't get that that kind of consideration, so he eluded capture for some while. So anyway, on that finally on that fateful day, I think it was 1896, they put a rope around him as neck and they said, "Do you have any last words to say?" And there was a hundred people there waiting, and he looked at them and he said, "Nope, I came here to die, not make a speech." This man was tough to the end. That was mm. Cherokee Bill. Mm. Talk about Nat Love. Well, <laughs> Nat Love was one of the five to 8,000 cowboys who drove cattle up the Chisholm Trail. Now, see, there's another story that people don't know, that the average trail crew of 8 to 11 that drove cattle up the Chisholm Trail and the other trails in the 30 years after the Civil War uh, of, the, of those people, two or three were African Americans. They mm. were there, and there were some one or two were Native Americans or Mexicans. So mm. the trail crews didn't all look like John Wayne. They didn't. Right. They didn't. They weren't all white guys. Right. And <clears throat> Nat Love was one of those guys, and he uh, was a former slave. He got himself out because he, he couldn't go to school in the South even after the Civil War and freedom. He got himself out to Deadwood City in the Dakota Territory, and he became a cowboy. He, he went on uh, various uh, trips and so on, and he he would come into uh, he was treated just like all the other cowboys to hear him uh, tell it. Black, white didn't matter, and. Um, he he actually on July fourth, eighteen seventy six, he entered a roping and shooting contest there in Deadwood, I guess to celebrate the fourth of July. And he won. He won hands down and the crowd uh his name was Nat Love as you said, but the crowd renamed him with the honorary title of Deadwood Dick. Yeah. And uh he carried that for the rest of his life very proudly. Hmm. And there was a play back in the 70s, Deadwood uh, Dick. I think it was written by uh, one of the guys out at Black Spectrum Theater in, in Queens. Uh-huh. And uh, very entertaining. Telephone number 213-943-3618. Hit one on your telephone keypad if you have a contribution to make to this dialogue with Author William Lauren Katz. The book is Black Indians: A Hidden Heritage, 
and many of our families they uh, we talk about uh folks in our families who are Indians and uh, it's just a verbal uh account as opposed to a diary or someone writing on what they knew or what they heard from their great grandmother here's a book that chronicles the the mixture of blacks and the Native American Indians right here on this soil. And this is, once again, the Keys 107 Network. We have some announcements coming up. After that, we will continue with our dialogue with William Lauren Katz regarding his book, Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage, and also some of his other works, and then learn from him the unique role that his father played in his life as it relates to the interest in black history. So we have these announcements coming up. Please pay very close attention to them. Support our advertisers on the Keys 107 Network. We will be right black. Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC, is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet. Now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. Fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing at the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cut shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, bath accessories, and inspirational music imported from Africa, India, and Asia, as well as jewelry and accessories. Moon 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Don't forget to visit moon107.com. Jump back and dust off your Cadillac. You're listening to Respect for Life with your host, Brother Leroy, on the Keys Network. Blog Talk Radio, baby. Act like you already knew. Ow! We're back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Keys 107 Network. The featured show is the Communicators Respect for Life segment. Here with our guest, Brother William Lauren Katz, the author of Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage. He's with us for only a few more minutes. The book is a very excellent reference book, meaning you can always sit down with your teenager, with your young child, read the book with them. I advise reading 
three pages and letting them read the next three and then you go to the next three. It's filled with stories and accounts of the exploits of black Indians, black uh, uh, escape blacks from the slave plantations, and it gives a heroic picture of the fight for freedom, justice, and equality in America that is not told in the regular history books, especially today. They have this new new core curriculum that people are championing and saying, yes, yeah, the greatest thing. But our great brother Donald Smith and Sam Anderson, Dr. Sam Anderson, have pointed out that the core curriculum being promoted throughout the U.S. is devoid of relevant information regarding black history. So you have a perpetuation of a situation where people are coming through the school system not knowing about themselves in school. So therefore, you, the parents, the guardians, the interested individuals within your and our communities have to acquire these books and find a way of reading them in a community center, even at a senior citizen center for that matter, and gaining more information there from them who can match up with stories from their own past, but getting this information into the minds of young people who are basically being told by the environment that they are less than. Uh, Brother William Lauren Katz, go to the unique role that your father and his involvement in in New York history played in your coming to be a writer, an expert, in black history. Sure. Uh, but but first, I would just like to add uh, for your audience that my website, WilliamLKatz.com, has some essays on black Indians they can look at for free, uh, and, and the Black West, for that matter, my other books, that, you know, if, if they want to peruse and see some of the uh, stories about it that we've been talking about and others that we haven't gotten to and so on. Now, my... My, my father was was, was a kind of interesting character because he he was a high school dropout who really wanted to learn things and he first fell in love with jazz music and so I was one of the few white kids in the world I suspect who grew up going to sleep listening to Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong King Oliver records uh, and so on. And woke up surrounded by books by W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass, E. Franklin Frazier, John O. Franklin, and so on. So I got, I imbibed very early this this great interest in, in black history. My father, by the way, uh, w- wasn't just uh, a, a kind of self-made scholar, but he was an activist. And he got very uh, interested in uh, the black people that he got to know in Manhattan who were in the arts and couldn't really get ahead because of the bigotry at the time. And he helped found an organization that you can hardly find anything about in the late 40, 1940s called the Committee for the Negro and the Arts, mm. with famous people like Charles White, Ernest Critchlow, and so on, who, mm. you know, here were, here were people of enormous talent, but they, they couldn't really get decent jobs in radio and so on. And my father, with, together with his collaborator, uh, Walter Christmas, actually wrote a black history play that was performed, I think, in the early 1950s in the basement of the Schomburg Library. And I want to tell you the actors. 
Harry mm. Belafonte, Sidney mm. Poitier, William Marshall, <laughs> and, and mm. so on. Uh, Frank Silvera. I, I mean, th- these were the people he palled around with. I mean, and, and the jazz musicians. I mean, I was lucky enough as a kid. Uh, I met Sidney Bechet and James P. Johnson in our living room because mm. my father was organizing uh, jazz concerts to raise money for an organization called the United Negro and Allied Veterans of America after World mm. War II. So mm. I, I, uh, that, that's the background I came out of, which is how come I got this wonderful introduction to this, uh, these lost pages of American history. And, and you're focused on black cowboys. That's your first book. Yeah, my first book was the, was the Black West. And, and as, as you said before, it has hundreds of, of pictures in there. And I, and I tried to cover a lot more than, than cowboys. But the cowboys were very important to me because I had a brief conversation a couple of years before I got into that book with uh, Langston Hughes. I, I had uh, requested his permission to use some of his writings in my first book called Eyewitness. And lo and behold, in about 19, late 1966, I got a phone call one night as I was cooking my dinner, and there was Langston Hughes on the other end of the line. And uh, when he said, uh, Mr. Katz, uh, what kind of book is this? You, you know, you want my permission. I said, well, it's, a, it's designed as a school text. It's, it's on story of African Americans, but designed as a school text. And he said one thing after that. He said, good, good. Don't leave out the cowboys. Mm. Now, his words stayed with me. And I, I don't know if you know the whole background of Langston Hughes, but he, mm-hmm. he could not only trace his African ancestry, but he could trace his Native American ancestry back to Pocahontas. And mm. what he was saying to me is that this story of cowboys and Indians, black and white kids have to learn that was part of American history. They were mm. there. Black people were among the cowboys, among the Indians, and that was a very important. And I, I, and that's why I, I went into the whole thing of writing about black people in the West, and then the black Indians. It, it was that comment of his as I turned it over in my mind. Mm. And and in terms of the the uh, the the start, okay, you you start with him. Where did you go from there? To the Schomburg? To, to you yeah. know, what pool? I, I, of course, I, I went to the, to the Schomburg, but I, I had to go far wider than that because even the Schomburg at that point didn't have too much on the Western Cowboys. There was just one book out that had just come out about a year or two before called The Black Cowboys, a very good book. Uh, so I had to go to the Library of Congress, I had to uh, contact uh, state historical societies all over the country. And, and I have to say I got a lot of cooperation from uh, librarians in, in California, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, and so on, sending me not only information and leads, but important pictures that they actually went into their files and dug out. So I was, and, and I mean, I had to use pictures. I didn't think anybody was going to believe me if I just wrote this as a history. So I've always used pictures uh, in my books. Well, many of them are, you know, are, are used in schools, which is good. But adults, I think, appreciate pictures too. Pictures are evidence. 
as much as documents are. Excellent. In in your book, you point out that the earliest European communities in the South were built with slave labor. And oh, yes. what's implied there is the plantation houses that we see with the large pillars, etc. There's a lot of talk that I've heard that these magnificent mansions were built with the engineering of blacks. And I have not seen any material. I haven't, I haven't dealt. I haven't dug for the material, but I haven't seen material that points to this. What did you come across that would point to the engineering background of the blacks who did, in fact, build these plantations in these communities? Well, they not only helped, you know, in the building of the plantations. In some cases, uh, slaves were were used to run the plantations. I mean, hmm. this is a story that's not generally known. They were involved in all the work. They 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 taught the uh, people in the South you know, r- this rice cultivation that came from Africa. Uh, they served. I, I mean, in my other books, I go into this in, in greater detail. Uh, but you know, they they were a fundamental part of the entire southern economy and they were inventors they uh in in many ways i i don't have it all in front of me now because it's not right. in the in the current book we're discussing but there, right. there's no doubt about it. and let me add one other thing that people don't know the first people enslaved in the americas were not africans but native americans the yes. europeans came who came over here were ruthless and they were seeking gold and they were seeking slaves and they were seeking riches, and the first they put the first people they could put their hands on were Native Americans, and that happened here in New York when Henry Hudson sailed up the Hudson. It happened when the Spaniards first landed in the uh, Caribbean. It, it happened when the uh, Spanish and, uh, uh, expeditions went out into the into New Mexico and so on, and then Africans. And Native Americans then first met in the slave huts of the New World and on the plantations of the New World. And they found, very simply, they had the same enemy. And that's why they united. Hmm. Let's talk about what I call a tragic account of Dorman. And uh, that's the, uh, the Sioux, Isaiah Dorman. Tell us that story, the Black Sioux. Okay, well, Isaiah Dorman is is a, a, a kind of a, a an unfortunate character in history. He was uh, part African. He was married to a Sioux woman, and he was one of the scouts used by General Custer when he went out to uh, put down the Sioux, which are also known as the Lakota people, and. Uh, he evidently had made friends with some of the Sioux leaders. And the story about him that comes down to us is that he was one of the last people killed when uh, Custer was surrounded and had his last stand. And his, I think it was 266 men all, all died. And he was one of the last ones. And he was dying. And uh, one of the, I think it was Sitting Bull, gave him a, a goblet of water, said, I know that that man and he died but what 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 it tells us is like another character jim beckworth who founded beckworth pa- uh, pass and was 
of African and Native American descent. He was also forced by a Colonel Chittington in 1864 to take part at gunpoint. He was forced to take part and be a scout as Chittenden's force moved on a Native American settlement in Minnesota. So hmm. some of the black people were forced to do that. It's what, what I'm getting at is, you know, there were terrible things that were going on. And even in the whole story that I told you of Africans and Native Americans getting together, every effort was made by the Europeans to keep that from happening, to play red people against black people, just as they hmm. played house slaves against field slaves, uh, right. children against parents. Hmm. But it, it's amazing how this alliance held. And, and what I, I go into as I get toward the end of Black Indians, you, you can see in the book, was that this alliance continued. We know Martin Luther King uh, was leading the Poor People's March on Washington when he was slain by an assassin. But that Poor People's March included members of the Native American liberation movement. They were mm. there with him. Uh, Reverend yes. Farrakhan had Native American speakers yes. at his Million Man March, along with his uh, African American speakers. Right. The uh, Native Americans identified in the 1960s and 70s with Malcolm X and the Black Power movement. Mm. I mean, mm. it, and and and, uh, and Mumia Abu Jamal. Uh, if you go to my website, you can hear a recording. Of, of his review of, of black Indians, he thinks, you know, he felt there was something that, that all children should read. Because he, he says, uh, you know, we wouldn't have had the march toward imperialism in, in, in the last century or so if uh, children had been brought up on that kind of truthful history. Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, we only have a few more minutes with William Lauren Katz. He's the author of Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage. It's a wonderful book for adults and for our young people. And the book is an easy access. It reads very well. It's the kind of book that pulls you into chapter after chapter. And before you know it, you're into the book, well into the book, and you say, well, let me finish it tomorrow. And you will finish it tomorrow or the next day. It's an excellent book. It's in its uh, updated form pictures, well-spaced writing. It's an excellent book to have in your library. You must have libraries in your home. You must have a corner in your home or in your children's room where books that the two of you or the three of you, father and mother, if that's the situation, read, and they have to see you reading, they have to hear you reading, and you'll enjoy this book. It's a good start if you haven't been doing it already. 213 Nine four three, three six one eight two one three, nine four three three six one eight. There is a history, as Van Sertima found, that blacks were here in uh, uh, the continent of North America way before Columbus set foot, based on historical data. And then there are stories of black. Blacks in Mexico, and uh, not only on the the Caribbean side of of Mexico, but also in the California area. What did you find 
uh, it's not necessarily in your book. What did you find of blacks' involvement in the Mexican War, that is the Alamo, what that story was really about, the well, Alamo? It was, it, yeah, the, the, it was about the, the, the spread of slavery. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I would just, you know, and and, uh, and it was it was about bringing slaves into Texas, and uh, Mexico didn't want it, and uh, the United States went to war to subdue Mexico, and then the slaveholders brought in slaves. But let me mention an, an, another thing that I have in Black Indians. It's not generally known, but Vicente Guerrero, one of the leading generals in the Mexican struggle to become free. Uh, from Spanish rule, he became pre- he was a black Indian. He became president of Mexico in 1829. He yes. wrote the Constitution. He abolished mm-hmm. slavery. He abolished the death penalty. He banned discrimination. He was the George Washington and Abraham Lincoln of Mexico. How many textbooks mm-hmm. you find him in? See, that's the kind yeah. of story that I like telling. And that's an excellent add to the fact that when I was coming through school, I don't know how much history is taught. I know a lot is not taught today that was taught when we were coming through school. Andrew Jackson, I read a lot about Andrew Jackson, the War of 1812 and the Seminole Indian War, but never got a feel for how involved I was by way of my ancestors in that period in America. Mm-hmm. And that's covered in your your earlier dialogue regarding the uh, the Seminole Wars, uh, the yes. three major Seminole Wars. Right. The, he, he was no hero if you look at it from the point of view of uh, spreading freedom and building democracy. He was a uh, the Native Americans and Africans who fought against him had a name for him. They called him Long Knife because that's yeah. what they saw. And even in, in, in the black Indians, I even have a, a, a part picture from the time showing how he unleashed bloodhounds on the Native Americans and Africans he was fighting. Uh, now he, he was a, a vicious uh, uh, person. And that was uh, a tactic of the Spaniards and the French yes. in the islands of the Caribbean. Um, yes. The bloodhounds. And... Uh, when you when you when you're doing your book, you can get but so much inf- information into one particular book. But you have a lot of tributaries. I'm talking about as you do the work, you find yourself learning about so many other things that it's a struggle not to put them into one book. Therefore, you have a number of books. Talk talk about that journey of a writer. As you came across, <laughs> you focused on one thing, but you came across twenty other things. Yeah, well, as I said, my 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 first book I witnessed was a book designed as a school text that I wrote in 1967 because there were hardly any school texts that dealt with Black history, and I had been a teacher in New York for 14 years, so I knew the school curriculum, and I designed the book to follow the American history curriculum, so the chapters could just be slotted in. But you're right, I couldn't put everything in there, put in what I could have became a pretty thick book. But then I went, I, I, I've written other books, uh, and, and books that cover other people, uh, you know, that were beyond. I have a whole book called Black Pioneers, 
about the African Americans who uh, pioneered in the Ohio Valley uh, soon after the American Revolution. I've written a lot about blacks in California and black Indians. One of the people I, I cover is a black Indian a woman named Lucy Parsons, who nobody ever heard of. She was born in slavery. Her full name was Lucy Rodriguez Parsons. She was of African, Hispanic, Native American descent, and uh, a slave. And she became a leading spokesperson for the cause of uh, ending capitalism and replacing it with a worker's state in the uh, 1870s in Chicago. And uh, she went on to fight, and she came up with a concept in 1905, speaking to a labor convention of the industrial workers of the world, which was a very radical union that took in black people, Chinese, and others besides whites. And she said to them, fellow workers, the next time we go out on strike, let's not go out on strike. Let's stay in and tie up the means of production. Now, I think your listeners can grasp that what she is getting at is the concept of passive nonviolent resistance that Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi and the anti-war demonstrators of the 60s developed and were carried on to this day by the Occupy Wall Street and other uh, dissidents in our society. But here was this woman, self-educated, <laughs> very bright, by the way, a writer, brilliant speaker toward England speaking to native uh, uh, English groups of workers and so on, promulgating this thing in 1905 before anybody else was. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest is William Lauren Katz, the author of Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage. It's in paperback and in hardcover. Hardcover, the updated, it's a uh, a book that you will find in your your Amazons, your Barnes Nobles, and your no neighborhood bookstore. And we advise you always to support a neighborhood bookstore. Just go in, order the book through them, and uh, that's how you keep the few neighborhood bookstores going. They are specialized institutions where you can get the service that you need, and you're supporting a business that supports people within the community. William Lauren Katz is with us only for a few more minutes, 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618. We're talking about the mixture, the alliances between escaped blacks from the slave plantations and the indigenous Indians who were here in North America, the various tribes, etc. The information, the value of the this information, although you 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 as an author can share information, quite often because it's not validated in the general media, we don't see it in the general media or on T V or otherwise, that it doesn't have the value in the minds of the the listener, that it should. What is the value of black history to black people from your perspective? Well, I think black people have made very clear that their history is strikingly important to them, and it's important particularly to their children, and that uh, that 
in a classroom, white and black children should grow up learning about all of the heroes of America and about all of the problems that America went through. It shouldn't just be a white uh, history and a kind of a showing cowboys as uh, looking like John Wayne. You know, some of them look like this Deadwood Dick or Cherokee right. Bill or Louis Armstrong or, or you know, any, any other black person you might name. And, uh, by the way, I, I also brought out a book called Black Women of the Old West. Yes. And, and one of the fabulous characters I have in that is a woman named Mary Fields who goes out to Cascade, Montana in the 1870s and becomes stagecoach Mary, the yeah. only the second woman in American history to deliver the U.S. mail. And she also drove a stagecoach. And if you know what the weather's like at Cascade, Montana, it goes down to about 20, 30 below zero. So hmm. this is, is quite a fabulous character. She's six foot height. She didn't take any guff. And uh, she made quite a name for herself. Uh, I cover her in books like The Black West and Black Women of the Old West. Oh, by the way, oh, yes, she is in black. Uh, she is in my black Indians also because while she's out there in Cascade, Montana, she goes to work in a, a convent, a Catholic convent school that teaches Native American girls uh, uh, different things so they can enter society with many skills. So she's part of that movement of black people helping Native American people that continues on after the Civil War and on after the decades of, uh, you know, the, the early alliances. As we conclude, share with us the interesting story of the Buffalo Soldiers. <clears throat> well, thank you. That's, a, that's quite an assignment because what you have here is that black people had always fought for the right to get into the U.S. Army and the Navy. And in the Civil War, actually before that, and even in the Colonial Wars and the American Revolution, in the American Revolution, for example, 5,000 black people fought and helped uh, George Washington, you know, uh, liberate the uh, 13 colonies from British rule. But they had to fight again in the Civil War with 200,000 black men fought or more, fought uh, and, and saved the Union. And by the way, I'm using that phrase advisedly because that's what President Lincoln said. If it hadn't been for the black troops, he would have had to give up the battle in three weeks. That's mm. a direct quote. So mm. after the Civil War, black people wanted to serve again. And they were admitted into the U.S. Army, but in segregated units as uh, called the Buffalo Soldiers. There were two uh, infantry units, the 24th and 25th, and there were two cavalry units, the 9th and 10th. However, however, what the government did was the government assigned them to the West, and that meant their main job, not their only job, but their main job was suppressing Native Americans, dr uh, driving them onto uh, reservations, fighting those who resisted, and so on. So here you had black men had the, the terrible choice. Do they join an army that does these horrendous things against people who are their, essentially their kinfolk? Or, you know, do they take terrible jobs that, you know, don't go anywhere, don't pay anything, and have very little dignity to it? Well, mm -hmm. I found out that 
and, and the new edition of Black Indians, one of the people I came across was a Sergeant Major George Washington Williams, man of African descent, goes into the Buffalo Soldiers with 10th Cavalry, and he finds after a while he could not take the racism of his, the white officers over him. By the way, I have to say that there were no, uh, there were only a handful of black commissioned officers. All of the officers, even in the black regiments, were white officers, all the commissioned officers. So George Washington Williams, and he mentioned some other men in his, under his command that really couldn't take this thing. They really felt badly about the Indians. Anyway, he quits. He leaves the, the ranks, and he, by the way, becomes the leading African-American historian of the 19th century. He writes a huge two-volume history of people of, uh, people of African descent in the mm. Americas. Mm. Mm. Wow. Very, very yeah, the Buffalo Soldiers' story is a is a, a mixed story. To Native Americans, they were not heroes, but to to many black families, there was a sense of pride that their men had fought in the army. Now, weren't weren't they double crossed by the American government in terms of their pensions? I. I think they were. Uh, let me put it this way. I, I don't know that as much as I know that they were sent to the worst uh, isolated places. They were not given decent horses. They were given less training. They were given less medical facilities. And they were treated more harshly when they uh, committed crimes or were even accused of committing crimes. Hmm. They, they were not dealt with fairly for years and years. Finally, later on, you know, by the time you get to President Bill Clinton, you get a, a growing recognition of what they did about their bravery, their stamina, and uh, the fact that, you know, they served very well. Right. Do we have a call on the line before we conclude the interview? I'm asking our engineer. I thought I heard an indicator of a... Okay, then no, 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 uh, nobody with the, their hands up right now. Okay, very good. No problem. We are at the end of our interview with William Lauren Katz. Brother Katz, what is your website again? It's WilliamLKatz.com. WilliamLKatz.com. And if any of your listeners are interested, I'm uh, going to be on Cultural Caravan. Uh, tomorrow, Wednesday afternoon, I think it's 4 o'clock on Channel 25 and 21. It's an educational channel, and I'm going to be talking about the uh, the movie Lincoln and how truthful that was to history, particularly African-American history, and what it left out. And my, as I said, my website is WilliamLKatz.com. Beautiful, beautiful. I want to thank you once again. And we will be having you on our Sunday program very soon, continuing the same dialogue and reaching out to the Harlem community. I want to thank you for reaching out to us, informing us of the updated version of Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage, and sharing that information with our audience. And may God continue to bless you and your family for the work that you've done 
and also very importantly for the spirit that you have as a sharer of information as a teacher and a guide to many people who don't have the information, both black and white. God bless you, my brother. Thank you, and and, and the same to you, Brother Leroy. I want to thank you for using your program to promote truth to everybody. We in the New York area need that, and and for for the rest of the country as well. And thank you so much for having me on. All right, excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Keys 107 Network. We're very happy that you have joined us this evening. For those individuals whom you feel should hear this program beyond the audience that was present this evening, they can go to the Keys 107 Blog Talk Radio, then go to the Keys 107 Network, and then put in Communicators, Respectful Life, and Today's Date, August 6th, and they will be able to listen to the program as it was presented. Once again, we are on this coming Saturday evening from 8 to 9 with another informative classroom for you and yours. In the meantime, support the Keys 107 Network by listening to the other shows that we have and also by supporting the advertisers who keep our network going. May God continue to bless all of you, especially those of you within the community who see the brothers with the Final Call newspaper. Get that paper. Each paper of the Final Call, each issue of the Final Call is equivalent to a book. There's lots of information in there. And as you get into the pages, you'll begin to miss the paper when you don't see the brothers or see it on your newsstand. So the Final Call, the headline of this past week's edition, Boycott Florida. The new edition is out tomorrow in New York. Look for the paper wherever you are, the Final Call newspaper. Support it because it supports you. God bless you all with a wonderful and a fantastic week. Yeah. Five, two,
Series 107, and the FOI Board of Directors is proud to present The Final Call. The Final Call is the country's unique leading source for news. Founded by the Honorable Louis Farrakhan, National Representative of the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, The Final Call follows in the tradition of Muhammad Speaks with hard-hitting national and international news and coverage of political issues. It is the official communications organ of the Nation of Islam. Founded in the 1930s as the final call to Islam, the newspaper evolved into Muhammad Speaks in the 1960s and boasted a circulation of 900,000 a week with monthly circulation of 2.5 million. Today, the Final Call newspaper serves a readership of diverse economic and educational backgrounds, including circulation in North America, Europe, Africa, and the Caribbean. Read the Final Call newspaper. You can find one of the beautifully bow-tied representatives in your community or read finalcall.com. <laughs> 